and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, a publisher and editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. The recent compromise of the CC Cleaner security scanning tool and Medox financial software raised concerns about the risks posed by vulnerable software supply chains, but companies face other supply chain risks as well in the form of third-party service providers from law firms to technology services and auditing specialists. How secure are these third-party firms' networks? If the hack of big four consulting firm Deloitte is any measure, the answer is they're not very secure at all. That company, we learned, is the victim of a wide-ranging breach that exposed email information on employees and customers as well as administrative credentials. Subsequent open-source research in the wake of the breach turned up a slew of red flags about Deloitte, including virtual private network credentials and thousands of company systems that were directly accessible from the Internet. On this week's podcast, we're going to talk to two people who spend a lot of time sizing up firms by looking at them from the outside. Side. One is the guy who dug up Deloitte's dirty laundry, Dan Tentler of the firm Phobos Group. But first, a challenge that many companies have is evaluating how secure their business partners and suppliers are. Firms like Target, which was hacked by way of an air conditioning servicing contractor, learned the hard way to pay attention to third-party security. But Stephen Boyer of BitSight says the lesson often goes unlearned. BitSight has developed a score, kind of like a credit rating, to quantify how secure companies are based on how they look from the outside. Boyer said there's a correlation between firms that have a hard time keeping up appearances and those that get breached. To start this week's podcast, I asked Stephen to talk about how his company evaluates the security of firms just by looking at them from the outside. We sit outside of these companies and use a variety of different techniques to understand uh, are there machines that are compromised on those networks? Are there vulnerabilities that aren't being addressed on those networks? What are the users doing on those networks? What's your history of breach and breach disclosure? Uh, And then looking at that over long periods of time, we can start to build models around performance and security hygiene inside these organizations. We correlate those to breaches. We have probably the world's most comprehensive breach database where we look at those measurements, those technical measurements, the vulnerabilities and patching rates and the compromise rates and frequencies, and we correlate that with breaches. And so what we're able to see is that you can absolutely measure the spread and the probability of breach in an organization. And you can see, we see it from the top to the bottom, that the highest performers are much less likely to be breached than the low performers. Now, it doesn't mean that anyone's immune, but now you can start to measure it. And then when you can measure it, you can improve it and you can price it, which leads into our different use cases. And when we're talking about these ratings, um, these it's on a similar scale as uh, consumer credit. Is that right? Is it an 850-point eight, scale? Yeah, so we do a 250 to 900, so very similar. We, we picked that, so uh, there's enough dynamic range in there that you can see a big spread, but also that we didn't need to retrain the market uh, to where we're, we're really selling to uh, executives, risk managers, insurers, uh, supply chain uh, teams, and not always, they're not always security experts. And so when they hear somebody's an 800, well, they know that pretty well. They're f- somewhat familiar with that from the consumer uh, credit scoring market. And so they can understand, okay, I understand that performance is certainly much better than somebody that may be in the 300 range. You guys recently came out with a survey or a report looking specifically at financial 
services companies and their security ratings, and then also the security ratings of their supply chain, so the companies that they rely on to you know, do their business. Talk a little bit about that report and what went into it and what you guys found. As long as we've ever been tracking the ratings of industries, the financial sector has always been performing at the top. And there are a variety of different reasons for that. There's nothing that's built into the algorithm for finance or any, any of those industries. It's just that we see the performance of financial firms exceeding those of really those in any other sector. And we track that as an index and in individual companies. And so we understand that financial, the financial sector is doing a pretty good job. Nobody's perfect, but they're doing a pretty good job. Where we see a lot of challenges and, and some gaps and certainly concern uh, on the part of financial firms is their supply chain. Their partners who don't necessarily have the same controls environments, the same controls culture that they do, and many times they're not as regulated as tightly as the financial services companies. Right now, the financial services companies are under tremendous scrutiny from the regulators to monitor and to watch their third parties. What we wanted to be able to take a look at is, well, what is the performance of that supply chain? Uh, what do those companies look like? And is there a pretty big gap? Is there a reason for concern and areas for improvement? And what we found is that there was a pretty big gap. There's a pretty big gap between the way that the financial services companies were performing and that the way their business partners were performing. Uh, and I can talk to you some of those details as we go into it, but what we found is, hey, there's, there's an opportunity there uh, for somebody to exploit those systems and then use that trust relationship to go after the financial services company. And if you were inclined to be doubtful of that type of thing, right on schedule, uh, we hear about a very large and uh, scary-sounding security breach at one of the biggest service providers, uh, the consulting firm Deloitte. Yes, just recently announced, and it's certainly Deloitte's a very sophisticated firm, right? And, and it, the challenge is that anybody could be a target, uh, and that everyone has to be vigilant, watching, and responding here. Well, we actually don't know exactly how that breach occurred. What we have heard from independent security researchers, and we'll be talking with one of them later on this podcast, is kind of what you guys are talking about, that you know, if you looked at Deloitte from the outside doing open source investigation of them, there was a lot to find there, exposed exchange and Active Directory servers, um, you know, VPN credentials that had somehow been posted on GitHub. Is this the type of risk that third-party companies pose? Is this the type of thing that you guys are looking for? Exactly. Right. And I think these are the, these are the challenges that any global firm will face uh, is they have a pretty large attack surface. And so the opportunity for error uh, is really high and an attacker really only has to exploit a single gap. That is the real the challenge that every every firm has. Of course, uh, you know, these consulting firms have sensitive information for their clients. And so they, they have to be very vigilant there. Of course, those who are using these firms as as their partners also need to, to scrutinize and make sure that you know they're doing the right things. Now, uh, Deloitte has their own security practices, and they understand you know a lot of these risks. But really, it only takes one gap, right? And 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 I think that uh, that is very that is one of the big challenges executed at a high level because you know one slip up could be you know catastrophic. Can I ask you if you had a security rating for Deloitte? Yeah, so part of you know the principles for for us that we espouse, we don't we don't comment uh, specifically on uh, specific firms uh, on their ratings and, and publish those. Uh, we do talk about the industries and some of the challenges, which is why we're talking about this sector and these services in general uh, that they do have challenges that need to be addressed. 
I mean, one criticism is that Deloitte was had received some industry accolades for its security practice. And I think there are some within the security community who are pointing to the breach and saying, well, listen, you know, you, you got to you got to be able to take care of your own stuff, even, even if you do provide outstanding ser- services to other companies. It counts for little if the data they're entrusting to you is is not secure within your own IT infrastructure. So we know the folks at Deloitte really well, and they do run a very sophisticated organization, right? And so uh, I think maybe more details will, will come out on, on what happened, but I think that it's something, it's a challenge that every organization faces is Right, making sure that they're on top of these these gaps and challenges and addressing them quickly uh, before something can happen. One of the things you found again was that the finance industry overall, as as I said, you gave them a overall security ranking of seven ten. Um, is that is that generally good as industries go? It is right. You get a span right, so it is the highest performing that of a, of any of the sectors. Uh, and you have higher performers and you have lower performers, but you know, as an industry average, that's doing pretty well, right? That that's probably in the the top 80th percentile of, of of ratings for companies when you're thinking about the top end. But you do see a spread, right? And and mm-hmm. they're not everyone's performing the same level, even with inside a sector. Uh, and then when we start looking at other sectors, well, they're per- obviously performing below finance, uh, and those where you know you're introducing additional risks. And uh, looking at legal technology and business services, they ranked, according to your report, 680, 670, and 660, respectively. So we're talking about a different scale than personal credit. This is a a 900-point scale. Is that right? Yes, 250, 900. So 710 is maybe in the high end of average, if not uh, uh, above average. But those, those other scores, those are kind of they're average right is that would that be safe to say that the best of these industries are kind of in that average range yeah and i think you know you see a drop off as you start to move down and and what i want to call attention to is these are not the worst performers right and i think it's really important to understand that these aren't the worst performing sectors they're just providing key services to financial services uh and performing lower right and so when you think about that uh what financial services is hoping is that everybody's at their level (laughs) which Mm -hmm. No, maybe not always be practical, but for some of these services that are key services, they're really the extension of the firm. You know, in some ways, are now being held accountable uh, to that level of scrutiny and capability. Uh, even though they aren't the worst performing, that they are, there are areas for improvement there that we'll, what we'll see is additional scrutiny from financial firms because they're getting pressure from the regulators, but also just as a good uh, risk management practice for them to improve. So some of the things that you pointed out as characteristics of companies that had, you know, average or maybe lower overall credit ratings, first of all, the desktop software they were running, whether it was, you know, the most recent operating systems and whether it was up to date, you found that one in five business services organizations that supplied that were suppliers to the finance sector had at least one Windows XP system running somewhere on their network. Windows XP obviously no longer supported by Microsoft, so it's it's very vulnerable to attack. And I think around 25%, you said, had unsupported versions of Windows Internet Information Service. This is a older Windows uh, web server. Yes, and so we really wanted to call attention to these because most attacks aren't using zero-day or unknown vulnerabilities. 
And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, all the attacks are exploiting things that nobody knew about or nobody could have protected against, which is really wrong. Most of the attacks are exploiting vulnerabilities that have been known that have fixes available. And in many of these cases, it's just being diligent and executing at a high level from understanding your assets and removing those types of issues. And so we called attention to these areas in particular because Windows XP was exploited as part of some of these major attacks. And the ransomwares and wipers and WannaCry and NotPetya, uh, these were older systems that hadn't been updated. Right? And some of these systems aren't supported anymore. And so if they're existing inside of these organizations, they are a, a true risk. All right? and, it, and it obviously it depends on what information is there and what access it may have in the network and how that can move. But by the fact that these systems are there, that's a problem. Right? That means that somewhere, somebody somewhere inside these organizations isn't aware of this asset. Or they've had to put some other uh, access control around that uh, to mitigate that because that it's going to be really hard to protect it. Those systems, when they're are not protected, can be exploited. And that's where we're starting to we see that leading to breach. And when we correlate that, we had published previously, that organizations that have roughly half of their systems with patches that are 60 days uh, or older, their probability of breach goes up two to three times. Right. We, that way we can measure, right? And so this is why we wanted to call attention to is if somebody in your supply chain is having issues with this, this is something that you need to address. This is a conversation needs to be had. Understand well why are they why are they doing that? Have they put some sort of risk management around that? Uh, and then can you get comfortable and accept that risk? Because in some cases that just may not be acceptable for your business profile risk tolerance. Right. So it's not merely well, you know, you're not following best practices. It's it's actually that there's a demonstrable link between bad stuff happening, kind of broadly described, and these unpatched systems or these out-of-date uh, operating systems. Absolutely. And, and, and we're not saying anything new here around, hey, update your systems, because we've been talking about that for quite some time. What we're saying is now we can quantify that impact a little bit better. Uh, and you know, some organizations we've talked to, it costs them around a quarter of a million dollars to apply an update uh, wow. across Enterprise, right? So it's a non-trivial task and it's very complex and you have applications that you may break. And so uh, when someone says, why don't you just apply a patch? It's actually a, a complex, sometimes very nuanced decision uh, to do that. Uh, but over time, what we see is organizations that are running these systems at these levels tend to have, not at a 10% increase or 20% increase, two to three times uh, increased probability of breach. And so we're starting to get a lot more scientific uh, around how you might have these conversations and drive those different uh, actions because now we can measure the potential impact. When you're saying firm X uh, that's part of the supply chain for you know these financial services firms has a Windows XP system uh, on their network somewhere or an IIS uh, web server, uh, you're saying that because you can actually see that from outside. You don't have anything running within their environment to to tell you that these are all systems that you can actually observe as an external actor. Is that right? That's correct. Right. That's correct. You're not exploiting these systems. You're not uh, trying to exploit the vulnerability. But what we're able to see is that these systems and these versions are running. Uh, you can do that through the normal course of, of exercise the protocols or observing traffic in the right mm -hmm. places. And so what we're able to say is, hey, when something connects out, it says, hey, I'm a Windows XP machine and I'm using this version of Internet Explorer. 
Uh, and when you can observe that, you can understand, okay, that is existing inside of that organization. You walk it back and understand, you know, which organization did it come from? Uh, and it's coming from these business services and legal firms. Uh, in some cases, it was interesting. Legal firms did a pretty good job. They had some of the lower profiles of those. And so uh, they are tightening some things up. And we're actually seeing an uptick in the overall performance of the legal sector. Now, we've talked with a lot of different firms. And they realize this is a important aspect for their business because they're in the trust business. Uh, and so we are seeing a change in priority and investment, uh, which I would really give kudos to the legal sector for doing that. Because attackers aren't going directly after financial services in many cases, they're going after the law firm. And there have been some highly publicized cases of that uh, right. where an MA, an investment, uh, they went after the law firm because they could, they could get to the law firm easier than going directly after the financial services company. Or sometimes they are targeting information that may be resident at the firm about uh, mergers and acquisitions or uh, other, other information, intellectual property that may be of value. Exactly. You mentioned you call out peer-to-peer -peer file sharing technology as a particular problem within technology and business services firms. Probably not surprising. First of all, what are we talking about with peer-to-peer? -peer? What types of platforms? And why is peer-to-peer -peer in and of itself uh, a security issue? So peer-to-peer -peer in of itself is fine. And it's a protocol and it's information sharing and uh, it's a great way to download large files and the, and the technology itself is sound and not compromised. What we what we see though is that in organizations that don't control that, uh, we see behaviors that bring risk to the firm. And so, in these business services, we saw that you know, over twenty percent of them were participating in these peer to peer networks, downloading pirated content. Uh, or downloading applications uh, that were pirated, right? So copyright protected content uh, and pirated applications. When we do a study of those different pirated applications, roughly half of them install a backdoor. So let me use an example. You don't want to pay for X application. Uh, let's call it a productivity application. And so you go onto these uh, file sharing networks and you download it. And maybe you need an encryption key or something. Typically, those have some sort of backdoor. When we study that, we see that roughly half of those will install that backdoor and you're going to be compromised. And we, when we correlate that with, to the rate of system compromise, uh, it's, it's almost a perfect correlation. So when we see those types of behaviors inside of organizations that are participating in these types of activities, they may be downloading movies, books, uh, and applications, that highly correlates with system compromise, which highly correlates with breach. And so it becomes a cultural and controls issue. Uh, and this is why it's a concern to financial services, because if your partners are doing these and allowing their, their employees to install these applications or to download and participate in these networks, you're bringing risk to yourself, uh, right, and, and to your partners through that type of activity. A couple of years ago, we were talking about target systems and uh, the breach at that firm, which came by way of a um, HVAC uh, uh, contractor that was servicing uh, some of Target's facilities, if I recall. Um, do you look as well at, at those types of supply chain uh, partners, the folks who are doing the, um, you know, maybe building maintenance systems and, and those types of uh, services that interface with the company, but maybe in ways that, that organizations don't typically uh, think about. One of the biggest challenges that financial services firms face is 
which company do we go talk to? Which company do we go visit? Where should we spend our time? Which questions should we ask? And when you think about the profile of some of those vendors, they're not showing up on the top of your list, right? They may not be critical to business operations. You may not have a high degree of spend with them, but they may have some special access to your network and it would just be easier to compromise them. So we do. We focus on really every business in every sector. We We've, we have ratings that we track and update every single day on over 100,000 companies, uh, and that's growing every day. And what we did is we basically did ratings on the world's largest companies, and now it's driven by the companies that our customers ask us for. Right? And that may be that local HR firm in Texas or that small law firm in Louisiana that is really only supporting that local branch, but they are doing business and they're exchanging information with those firms, and there is some security risk there. And so we will rate them and then provide our customers the ability to understand, do we want to do additional diligence here? Are we comfortable? And can we track that over time and follow up if we see an additional issue? Classic one you know, would be something around WannaCry. WannaCry impacted lots of different sectors. It wasn't the, the largest infection of any piece of malware that we've seen, but certainly impactful. Uh, and so we were able to show our customers, hey, these are all the organizations in your supply chain that had WannaCry, and you could follow up and ask them, Okay, what control broke down? How was your data impacted? Did you have backups? How are you going to improve on that? And instead of just blasting that to 10,000 of their uh, customers in the supply chain, they were able to focus and be very targeted, have very targeted conversations with a select few that were impacted. And that's really getting to risk reduction uh, and, and management much faster in a much more efficient manner. What can companies do about the security of their supply chain? I mean, how can companies go out there and say, hey, you know, we're seeing that you've got an unpatched XP system talking to the outside. Get your stuff together. Yeah, this is a great question. It's one we get every day. It really starts with building a program, deciding what your strategy and expectations are, and then executing against that for how you want to engage your supply chain. And that starts with uh, the procurement team. That starts with the third-party risk team. But that really needs executive-level sponsorship at the board because that's going to require some investment. Uh, it's going to require some investment in changing the way that you think about things and how you follow up. Uh, that's tiering. That's understanding who's important, who you got to get to right away, who you, who do you really need to watch, uh, where do you need to spend time. Uh, that's looking at the controls. And then where we uh, come in and what we think is really important is continuously monitoring using data to drive that process, to drive that efficiently and effectively, knowing when to follow up, understanding which conversations to have at renewal, uh, and then asking the right questions. I'll share one example. One of our customers, big law firm, used the ratings with a you know, global CISO of a, of a company that had never had these types of pointed questions asked to him before. Typically, it's about, hey, do you have a program for patch management? He was asking very specific right. questions Hey, I see that you have IIS 6 running. What's going on there? How are you putting controls around that? And is my data going to be hosted there? That's a very different conversation, right? And then to be able to do that over time uh, is really where we want to focus. So, so our customers, this was the CISO of, of TransUnion, just won an award because he was able to increase the number of third parties he was able to assess by six times, but without hiring additional headcount. Uh, and that is really important because you're going to have to scale. Doing things the same way is just not going to work. Well, more and more third parties are in your supply chain. You have that because that's the way business is moving, and, and the business will move that way. You just need to be able to do that in a very effective data-driven way. But this this is a concern that really spans sectors. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at 
there and look at the, the literature, you know, 60 to 70% of these breaches are coming through the supply chain. So if you're financial service or not, this is something that you really need to watch, understand, communicate up to the highest levels so that risk can be managed because it can't be ignored any longer. Stephen Boyer, co-founder and CTO of the firm BitSight, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Hey, thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Stephen Boyer is the chief technology officer at the firm BitSight. And next up, When I called Dan Tentler to talk about his open-source research into the consulting firm Deloitte, I was expecting to hear him complain about the evidently lax security practices at the firm, including leaving thousands of company systems publicly exposed to the Internet. But Tentler had much less to say about Deloitte than what he considers the bigger problem facing companies of all stripes, a culture of what he calls smoke and mirrors in information security, with lax accountability and weak professional standards that pervade many companies. The security industry industry is sick, Tentler told me, and incidents like Deloitte and Equifax are symptoms of that sickness. I started by asking Dan how he went about studying Deloitte's security after hearing about the breach and what he found. When these large organizations get compromised, the first thing I do is go and spend five, maybe 10 minutes messing around, just doing a really simple, super lazy armchair version of what I would do on an engagement. I just poke around a bit. Um, I look and see what Census and Shodan have to offer. I check passive total. I look at their DNS stuff and I see if there's any just glaring, glaring problems. And usually uh, you get one of two results. Either one, the entire world is on fire and we need to go out and buy generators. Or two, they're a fortress and not very much in between. I, I ha- it's very rare for me or even you know, in the course of an engagement to find an organization that is kind of secure. It's either they're a bank that has no doors and leaves all their money in a giant pile on the floor or they're Fort Knox. In this case, uh, with, and also with the case of Equifax uh, before Deloitte, they are very similar entities from a digital perspective. Uh, They have a massive, sprawling external perimeter uh, that spans multiple countries, multiple ISPs, very likely multiple IT groups, and uh, dramatically disperse talent measurements. Like, you know, you'll have some people in one group that are really, really, really good, but because business, they're only responsible for a small chunk of the total perimeter. Uh, And then you'll have other people in other places that are not as good, uh, and there are many gaps. So, You take this and you scale it out to tens of thousands of hosts around the world. And what you get is effectively a Swiss cheese perimeter. So like in the case of um, in the case of Deloitte, for example, there was one of their offices in South Africa was exposing an Active Directory controller directly to the Internet with RDP. RDP, a remote desktop protocol that's used to uh, remotely access computers. Right. It's the yeah, it's how you remote control Windows computers. RDP, when you set it up on a Windows machine, it encrypts its traffic, right? So it, the, the traffic that you that you see back and forth from RDP or the RDP protocol is wrapped in TLS or SSL. And what that means is you get the same kind of certificate for RDP as you do for, say, an HTTPS connection, which means that you can examine the text in that certificate using a variety of different tools, and it will leak certain bits of information. In this particular circumstance with RDP, for example, the certificates are self-signed, which in of itself is not a big deal. But the problem in this case is that when you do that signing, the signing authority has to call itself something. And for lack of a better name or a better input from the user, it signs its own 
cert, it calls itself the CA. And because there is no input from the user, the only input that I can come up with, or like the default is the fully qualified internal domain name of the machine. In this case, that would be Deloitte something. Uh, in this case, it was Deloitte-AD-02.Deloitte.Local. That's what the issuer string was in the SSL certificate for the RDP port. What that does is it leaks the name of the computer. And the name of the computer, Deloitte AD02, generally speaking, 99% of the time in a Windows environment, AD stands for Active Directory. So what we're looking at is somebody purposefully put an Active Directory computer in a position where it was accessible over the internet by anybody. And that is like daggeringly horrible to do. Like no, nobody that calls, well, basically, if somebody calls themselves a security person and does this for some reason, probably shouldn't be called a security person anymore. Um, it's the equivalent of basically, well, take, like if you run a bank, taking all the money in the bank and putting it on the floor in the middle of the lobby and removing all the doors and windows and, and presuming that the money is gonna stay secure. Put yourself in their shoes. How do you think that particular high value system, um, and again, you know, Active Directory, that, that's a pretty important piece of the puzzle, ended up uh, publicly accessible to a search engine like Shodan or, or some other tool? If I had to speculate, I would guess that it was one of two possible scenarios. Scenario A is that there's a, a talented IT or security practitioner in that office who uh, fought tooth and nail. Uh, and at the end of the day, <clears throat> it was a, a management person or a business person that made this business decision to say, we need this port open for reasons X, Y, and Z, despite the protests of whatever talented or whatever talent existed. Option B is that no such talent actually exists and nobody who should be allowed to touch a computer is actually running things in that office. Right. So if the people that, arguably invent the rules, don't follow the rules. And if the people that are auditing you to make sure that you're following the rules aren't following the rules, what on earth is going on? You mentioned the Active Directory server that was exposed via remote desktop protocol, but there were actually a, a wide range of other slip-ups, including um, uh, VPN credentials that had leaked, um, I think credentials to a uh, proxy, F5 um, proxy that had leaked as well. What can you tell us about those slip-ups? The industry is sick. The industry has a disease, and the disease that the industry has is that it will believe anything you say if you have a CISSP. If you are able to get this cert, and I know that there will be people that will say, but you need five years of experience. And I know people that will say getting the CISSP is a well-rounded education, to which I would say, you tell me when bollards, infrared sensors, and fire extinguishers are gonna come into play when you're dealing with a breach like Equifax or Deloitte have just had. But the, the general consensus is that the CISSP is overall good and will help you in your career. And it is an often, often it is what I call an HR firewall bypass. You can get this cert and HR will, sim similar to how compliance works, check the box next to your name and say that you meet the criteria. And then in a lot of circumstances, the people doing the interviewing are not technical people and are not security people. So it's very easy to just juggle a lot of technical jargon and make somebody believe that you know what you're talking about, when in reality, you just spent 
$7,000 or whatnot on a boot camp, and then you took the test and you passed the test. So now you have this golden, like Willy Wonka style golden ticket, which is your, your ticket to get into InfoSec. And now that you're in InfoSec, you have no idea what you're doing. You bought your way into InfoSec because you paid for a cert. And now because somebody believed what you said, you're stuck having to deliver on the promises that you made. And you have, you're flying by the seat of your pants and you're Googling everything as you go frantically because you don't want anybody to know that you have no clue what you're doing. Because the people that are doing the hiring and the people that are trying to attract the talent aren't asking existing talent. They're making these decisions in a vacuum. They're releasing job postings to the internet that don't make any sense. They have aggressive recruiters that get paid for every person that they place. And what you end up with is this scenario where if the recruiter believes that you meet the criteria, the recruiter will argue your case despite the fact that you have no clue what you're doing. And you will end up getting placed to the company because, especially in the case of compliance, because with compliance, everything is written down. Everything is very well explained. There's copious reams of documentation that explain everything. And they will just sit you down with several three ring binders full of, full of text and say, here's like two feet tall of paperwork. Read this paperwork and make sure that you have it memorized basically before we send you out to a customer site. So in the event that we send you out to a customer site and the customer says, oh man, should I be using CBC ciphers in my SSL suite? Like, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. I keep reading that CBC ciphers are bad. And then you find this, uh, this air quotes professional uh, rapidly shuffling through this three ring binder, trying to find what on earth is a CBC cipher and, and, and <laughs> is it actually bad or is it good? This is why companies keep getting hacked over and over and over and over and over again is because A, the business doesn't care about security at all. And B, to feign caring because they have to pretend to care because of compliance, they will hire a whole bunch of people with the CISSP certification and then wave their arms and say, look, everyone on our team is certified. Everyone on our team is a professional. Everyone on our team is obligated to go get training once a quarter because you have to, because the IS, ISC2 bylaws say that you have to get the CPE, um, CPE credits from various training organizations um, to maintain your CISSP certification. And all this looks fantastic on paper. But what happens at the end of the day is Equifax. And what happens at the end of the day is Target and Sony Pictures and Deloitte. So the, the, the reason that we have this problem is because InfoSec is sick. We have, we have a cold. And that cold is blind allegiance to an organization that claims to, to produce professionals when in reality... If you just pay them, they'll call you a professional. There's a larger problem, too, which is that there, there are no organizations who are, are preparing at least the number of actually truly trained and qualified professionals that the economy needs. So that's created this aftermarket of certificate mills to try and feed the, the actual need in the economy for people with this skill set. The problem is, of course, as you say, that the people with the certificates don't actually have the skills. They just have the certificate. Where are we training the next generation of security engineers? So there's an organization called Offensive Security. I think they're based in Israel. And within the hacker culture, the OSCP is the de facto standard cert certification that people consider serious. Because the coursework is all hacking. There's no multiple choice exams. There's no test. There's no essay. There's no forms you have to fill out and answer questions. The training is hacking and the practice is access to a VPN lab with a bunch of vulnerable hosts. And you, it's basically a firing range and you, you practice by 
breaking into computers. And the final is another lab with more computers that are vulnerable in specific ways, and you have to hack them. That's how you pass. Right. As opposed to the CISSP, which is a multiple choice test where you fill out bubbles on a Scantron. So if you have to choose between two, and I'll, this is an amusing false dichotomy on my part, is if, you, if you're forced to choose between people with two different certs, the CISSP or the OSCP, you know for a fact that to get the OSCP, that person had to hack at least 40 computers. Not just fill out a test, or not, fill, not just fill out a form and read a book and memorize a book about policy, but actually break into computers, write exploits. They have, you have to, I think you have to write at least two or three buffer overflows to pass the test. Mm-hmm. And so in computer security, this is the pain we're currently experiencing, is we have permitted this scenario to exist. And the trouble that we're in now is that there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that now are entrenched in these security positions that have no idea what they're doing, and they will fight tooth and nail to keep their nice, cushy, high-paying security job. Talk about the exposure that came by way of you know, GitHub and, and uh, even Google+. Plus. How, how common is it in your work as a consultant to find uh, you know, VPN credentials just out on GitHub somewhere or stuff posted on social media? Very, very rare. I don't think I have ever found VPN credentials just exposed on the internet like that before. I have found instructions on how to connect to the VPN. I have found redacted employee handbooks that I was able to unredact because the people that redacted them did it incorrectly. I have found leaked credentials in leaks that have happened like Dropbox and LinkedIn and Ashley Madison and those sorts of things. Um, I don't think I've ever found what was found for Deloitte on an engagement before. Wow. So yeah, so that's, that is, it is staggeringly bad and it, it speaks to either a, Again, it's, it's going to be one of two stories. One, they don't have the talent and the people there have no idea what they're doing. Or two, um, there are people there that do know what they're doing, but they have their hands tied because management is telling them to specifically avoid doing certain types of work or specifically avoiding doing certain things. And, and if I had to guess, I would, I would across the board, because Deloitte is this massive global company, I would guess it's probably a combination of both. From all accounts, and Brian Krebs posted a story with an unnamed source, one source, but uh, by that source's account, this hack uh, was much longer uh, lived and much more extensive than the company has uh, admitted. We don't know if that's accurate, but that's what Brian Krebs is saying. Um, what If you're advising Deloitte, how do they get back their feedback on the ground here and recover from what looks to have been a pretty serious breach? What ends up happening with these sorts of things is a problem is discovered and somebody makes a comment about the problem and then there's a discussion and then the reading between the lines, there's going to be somebody that, somebody that loses their job because they were incompetent and, and made a whole bunch of decisions they shouldn't have made or they had no idea what they're doing. And they will fight tooth and nail to defend their position and they will use political tactics to, they will employ the use of political tactics to avoid taking responsibility for making that egregious error. And uh, they will deflect or they will, they will complain about something that should have happened that didn't happen. And that's why, or whatever, they'll make a bunch of excuses and you'll have all this infighting happen. 
So when the organization has to go and triage the problems and deal with the fallout, there are people, again, that I mentioned that are, they're going to lose their jobs because they will be outed as having no clue what they're doing. And they don't want to lose their cushy six-figure security job. So it will turn into the blame game and it will turn into smoke and mirrors and it will turn into a big political mess. And allowing the company to fix itself will mean that nothing will change. A handful of people will take the fall. Like, for example, Equifax CEO guy who his punishment was $18.4 million in early retirement. Like, really? Seriously? That is not incentive to fix stuff. Right. That is, we're going to lay all the blame on you. Your career is boned. You're never going to work again. But here's $18.4 million. You're set for life go away and we can, it can be business as usual. And this is the, this is the cycle. The cycle is company doesn't care about security. Company does as little as humanly possible. Company gets breached. Bunch of stuff happens. News comes out. It gets politicized. Lots of people poke fun. Information security laughs at them. Somebody gets fired. That person basically gets a wheelbarrow of money and is sent on their way. They, they install a new person in charge and the cycle begins again. Because the new person in charge has no, well, think of it this way. You're going to be the new, oh, uh, let's, let's do it this way. You're going to be the new Equifax CEO. Your predecessor didn't give a shit about anything and walked away with $18.4 million. And now you're in his place. What are you going to do? Well, seems reasonable to believe that if you give absolutely zero fucks, that you might be able to walk away with $18.4 million too. It is interesting that all three, the CIO, CSO, and CEO, all retired was the word that was used to describe their departure. I don't, I don't know if they were all happened to be at the end of their careers or what, but um, that is unusual. Often they just step down or um, resign, but in this case, they were all retirements. Yeah, so call it what it is. It's a facade. The whole thing is smoke and mirrors. This, this, the end of, the, by and large... The majority of, in air quotes, the information security industry in America as it exists is basically smoke and mirrors. It's designed to make people feel better and to make people sleep well at night. And that's it. And, and it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And they don't like that being talked about. They don't like the fact that it is smoke and mirrors. Of course, the people that are making the money off of the current status quo are going to defend it tooth and nail because they're making the money off of the current status quo. If you talk to people that are in the compliance business, they'll do whatever they can to make this breach seem like the company was out of compliance or the company didn't do what they were supposed to do or there were gaps or there was this or there was that. And it was at the end of the day, at the 10,000 foot view, it was just gross negligence. So it's really obvious that compliance does not stop gross negligence. So how do you change how do you change the culture? You make people deal with the consequences of their of their errors. You you put people in jail, you fire people. Like if this was an airline and planes were falling out of the sky and people were dying, like it would not be a discussion. People would be going to prison. Dan Tentler, uh, Phobos, thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great speaking with you. Oh, thanks for having me. Dan Tentler is a principal at the Phobos Group. 